Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The sense of freedom and Comic-Con fever in the air at the same time. It's episode 271 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, we've got not only the 4th of July coming up, San Diego Comic-Con is less than a month away. We've got the news starting to come out fast and furious about that. But first, I mean, we've got to talk about a brand new show on CBS called Blood and Treasure. I say brand new, they've certainly got a few episodes under their belt already. Going to be talking to Father Chuck himself, Mark Gagliardi, on the show this week. He's not just playing Father Chuck, though, on the show. He's got a whole bunch of other stuff that he's done and is doing as well. We'll talk to him about that. Plus, going to be talking about the Season 3 premiere of Legion. Let's see if I can figure out what's going on. Also got a brand new sponsor on the show this week. Going to talk about something really, really cool that's coming to CNN that I think you're really, really going to like. But, of course, we're going to start things out with comics. So what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Greg Pak, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to take something out of that long box, or you can always fire up your tablet or your laptop. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And yep, going to be talking some Marvel this week. And I have a lot more Marvel comics reviews coming up on the show, as a matter of fact. Star Wars, Age of Rebellion, Darth Vader. Number one is what we're going to talk about this week, though. Greg Pak writing this one, Ramon Box. On the art, Stephanie Petreu on the colors and VCs Travis Lanham on the letters. Talk about a great cover, too, though, by Terry and Rachel Dodson. Really love that cover. Now, again, spoiler free here, but it's it's really a battle of wits and a battle of wills between Vader and Governor R. Now, there you, you see that they're really kind of at odds with one another in this book. And it's also what turns out to be kind of a teaching moment for the Emperor here. We really do get to see Vader, though, and and this is something that happened in the Darth Vader standalone series that Marvel had from before. We get to see him in some very uncomfortable, some frustrating and very unfamiliar light that we see him in. You know, anytime you see Darth Vader, we always see him as this huge authoritative figure. He's a huge badass. Nothing stands in his way. And in these, there's instances where there's definitely things that stand in his way and things that frustrate him and we get to see him go through quite a bit in this issue, and you really are not going to like Governor R. Whether you think it doesn't matter how you feel about Vader, if you love him or if you hate him, based on your experience with Star Wars and 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 where your fandom lies, you're going to be frustrated with Governor R. I can tell you that right now for sure. And then the final few pages, though, man, does all of this stuff pay off. In a big, big way, or at least I think it is. And I can't tell you about it because I'm just trying to be spoiler-free here. But what I can tell you is is that I'm a big fan of Greg Pak anyway. If you've listened to the show before, you know that. We've had Greg on the show a couple times. I knew that this was going somewhere. And when we get that full circle moment at the end, really, really brought it home for me. And that's just the kind of thing I should come to expect anytime Greg writes a book. Now, I really got to say, Ramon Box. Man, really brought a monstrous and creepy feel to the Emperor that I really, really love. We don't get to see the Emperor much in this book, but when we do, there's just this eerie quality about him. And it's just the way that the Emperor is drawn that's just creeped me out a little bit. I mean, the Emperor is creepy anyway, but for some reason, this representation was very creepy for me. And also the way he manipulates the setting to show Vader's frustration was a really, really big key to the story. When you read the book and you see what I mean, just these little subtle movements that you see, and I say movements, and we're talking about a comic book here, not any animation or anything, but you feel the movement in the way the art presents it, and it really, really helps shape the story in a certain way. So this is a pull for me. I love these Star Wars Age of Rebellion books. As a matter of fact, we're going to be getting Finn number one on July the 3rd, Got a couple more coming out as well. I think Luke Skywalker, number one, is already out too. So yeah, make sure you're grabbing these Age of Rebellion books from Marvel because they're definitely really, really good. Now, here's a crossover that's been, what, 35 years in the making? Transformers Ghostbusters, 
number one from IDW. And this is a creative team that you'll recognize. Eric Burnham on the writing, Dan Schoening on the art, right? Luis Antonio Delgado on the colors, and Tom B. Long on the letters. Now, as much as I love these two things separately, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I have to admit I was really a bit skeptical as to how this would actually work bringing them together. So all I can tell you is that something's happened with Cybertron and that has led the Autobots to kind of follow a beacon to Earth. Now, when we're on the ground on Earth, Ghostbusters team encounters a very different kind of ghost that they really can't quite pinpoint, but it is something that this ghost says that kind of at least catches one of their attentions anyway, and that's kind of where things really get brought together, and they find out, the Ghostbusters do, that they are not alone right now. So there's a couple of big spoilers in this book, and I mean big spoilers I'd really love to share with you, but I'm not going to. Now, one of them is pretty great, and it's a great callback to the first Ghostbusters movie with a really interesting twist. I had no idea that I needed this until I saw it, to be quite honest. And if you've read the book, you already understand what I'm talking about. I had no idea how amazing it would be until I saw it, and I really, really hope, and I think we are going to see that again. Now, another big spoiler has to do with what happened to Cybertron, and that's kind of how these two worlds are going to be brought together. Now, I do love that the art for this book brings back the original Transformers animated series look when we see the Transformers. It's like, it was like a, it's like a homecoming for me, right? It's that warm, comfortable blanket that you grab on. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's day or night. You just want to be comfortable. You're laying on the couch. You grab that one blanket that you know you're just going to be comfy. It's not going to be too hot, not going to be too cold. And yeah, that's the blanket that I've got, and that's the feel I get when I see this art. Now, Ghostbusters comic book fans are going to be really happy to see the art that they're used to seeing. You're going to get exactly what you want in this book if you're already a Ghostbusters comics fan. So, Seems pretty clear to me what's bringing these two worlds together, but how it plays out is really, really going to be key to how this thing goes forward. We get to see Ectronimus, the Transformer slash Ghostbusters Ecto-1, which, I mean, you've, that's not really a spoiler. You've seen the cover. It's, he's on a thousand variant covers. And not only that, but you've also got the toys that are coming out already. So you knew that that was coming, and we do get to see that particular Transformer, but we don't we don't see how that connects to the Ghostbusters right away. Let me just say that. So that's definitely something that's going to be coming in a future issue. But bottom line is this thing was fun. I had a ton of fun reading this. I'm not even sure where the story's going, really. Not. I mean, I know who I know who ultimately is going to be probably the antagonist here, and I think I know you know the steps that are going to take to get there. But I don't know everything that's going to happen. But I'm I'm just having fun with it. At this point, it's one of those things where I just, you know, throw my hands up and go, you know what, this is fun and I want to read it. And sometimes that's all that really matters. So put this in my poll box too while you're at it. Transformers Ghostbusters, number one from IDW, also putting in the poll box this week, Star Wars Age of Rebellion, Darth Vader, number one. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Let's see if I can decode the Legion Season 3 premiere from FX. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Fielding, Zordon from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's definitely time to get weird because we're talking about the season three premiere of Marvel's Legion from FX. This is going to be the final season, too, by the way. Going to be dropping some spoilers along the way, though, so spoiler filled from here on out. Now, again, Legion, for me, sometimes I watch this show and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. It, it's funky and interesting. But but I have no idea where this is going. And and that can either be the beauty of the show or the downfall of the show, as far as I'm concerned. So let's see how this episode works out. I'm really going to try not to walk you through this thing, but I want to try and point out a few things that did happen during the episode. Now remember, we saw David escape capture and make his full turn, his evil turn, if you want to even call it that. I mean, that's certainly up for debate, I guess, at the end of Season 2. Now Season 3... We start with a lot of Switch, which is the new time-traveling mutant that's being introduced in this season. And Switch kind of has a very distant and unavailable father who, you know, I mean, when they're eating breakfast, he's talking, she's talking to a TV. He's sitting there on, like, like via, live via satellite or something like that. 
asking her about her day for five seconds, you know, it's the typical, you know, pushing your children into something that you want them to be and, and wanting them to overachieve, yada, yada, yada. But clearly Switch is interested in studying time travel because we get to see her with headphones on a lot and a narration. So it's very interesting that she is very much in her own little world. Now, David seems to be using a special special message to recruit people that he actually needs and Switch is getting those messages, and it's really interesting because it's like they're coded only for people that he needs to get them, and I really love how clever that was. As a matter of fact, the way they used pattern recognition in this with the symbols was actually quite amazing and, and would call to someone with Switch's advanced skills and intelligence, too. So I thought that was a really, really neat thing to do. Now, the show always goes back to its staple, which is music and crazy imagery. You know, like when Switch is kind of trying to find her way to where David is. And she she knows who she's looking for, but not what she's looking for. And that's kind of Legion to a T, isn't it? And we see her crawling through the tunnel, and there's this musical montage type of thing going on. And it's, it's just very Legion. If you know the show, this is just something that you're going to get from time to time. I also love that when Switch meets Lenny for the first time, and it's she's supposed to be like the queen. That's the way she's presented, right, in this scenario. But she's not intimidated by Lenny at all. Lenny's acting like she's the queen, but Switch will only prove herself to one person, and that is the person she's looking for, which happens to be David. So now she has really no idea what she's getting herself into, which is kind of like, have you ever introduced this show to somebody new and tried to get them to sit down and watch it? And that's exactly how I would describe it. You have no idea what you're about to get yourself into with Legion, and and you're probably going to end up loving it. Whether you, you might not necessarily know why, but you're probably going to end up loving it. Now, the thing about Switch is that I love, too, is that she knows her worth. She knows her value. And we get to see that play out throughout this very first episode. We don't have to wait to find out how valuable Switch is. Now, David's presenting himself as kind of some sort of a, like a hippie guru, cult leader sort of thing. Now, as this is all going on, You've got Division 3 showing up while David's explaining himself who he is to Switch. We see him, we actually see David die a couple times at the hands of Division 3, and Sid is only kills him every time, too, by the way. That's the interesting part. Now, Switch sees this, and, you know, she travels back in time to try and prevent it a couple times, but, you know, time travel has consequences, and we see that in a lot of different shows. What's cool is, is we get to find a very specific consequence of time travel in this show and this is and that's this demon which we kind of get to see the demon a little bit but not a lot and and you you have to know that if that's the case this it's going to become a factor at some point it's kind of like how the shadow king was this distant thing that we didn't really know about until season one progresses until and obviously into season two it's almost like that's how this demon is in in this particular instance. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that's going to kind of have itself play out. Now, as Switch keeps going back, we see Farouk kind of follow Switch and they end up on the astral plane. And, you know, he kind of interrogates her, but she manages to escape. So clearly, as Farouk said himself, she's got skills. No doubt about that. But she feels a connection with David right away because he really, it seems like, he cares about her. She makes She tells this really sad story about how her dad has this room full of robots and she likes to pretend she's a robot, sort of like to act like she'd be worth his attention. It's really, really sad, but it it seems like David's calling out to her, like she's needed by him and she knows this and she needs someone that needs her because she doesn't feel like anybody does. So it's just a very interesting connection that she has to David at this point because she hasn't really known him that long, but yet she's willing to risk a lot for him already. Now, what I found was interesting was is that Farouk not only warns Division 3 not to go after David the way they do, but also Sid as well. Sid is hell-bent on going after David herself, and you kind of can't blame her, right? After everything that went down in Season 2 and how that whole thing played out and how he was kind of controlling her at the end there, trying to force her to love him again, and it, it was just, it was really creepy. And I'll talk about the whole uh, that as a whole here in just a second. But we, we sort of get to see that they really trust Farouk in Division Three. I'm not sure that that's a wise decision, but only time will tell. It seems like 
And he even says that they want to help David. But in, in these instances, is that ever the case? Oh, he's a very sick man and we want to help him and with the, with this big conglomerate. It never really works out that way. So again, it's kind of hard to pick sides a little bit here other than the fact that David murdered a whole bunch of people last season. But was it really Farouk that murdered those people? There's debate about this show and you could pick a side if you like, maybe you already have. Now, we do see the beginning of the assault from the division's perspective for the first time here at the end, but there really is no assault because David moves the entire hideout thanks to Switch warning him about what's going on, and that's sort of how things end, the trail going cold once again. So what I find interesting about what Legion is doing here is that you, at first you think that David's the hero, right? And then maybe that's not necessarily the case. And then maybe the division's doing the right thing. Maybe that's not necessarily the case. They're really painting a picture here that Sid is the one and only true hero of this show, of Legion. And that's kind of where we're at right now, isn't it? I mean, you can't really trust Farouk as a hero, David, you really can't say he's a hero. All he really cares about is Sid, and maybe in an unhealthy, obsessive kind of way at this point. He wants someone to love him, and she is that object for him. I'm not even sure it's even love at this point. I don't want to get too deep and psychobabblish into this right now, but it seems like this is something that he's just focused on, and he's going to do whatever he needs to do to, as he says, make it right and make it better. And, but even he's kind of self-aware that it's never really going to be the way it was and he might not be able to fix things to his liking. So that's the other really interesting thing about this is that we know what David really would want to do, but we don't know what his end game is going to be. And we do, and he does talk about his family a lot and how he was brought up in this first episode of season three to Switch. And that's another thing he kind of uses to relate with her. But we do know that we're going to see Charles Xavier. We're going to see Professor X on this show. So how that's going to play into this whole thing, I think is going to be really interesting going forward too. But the fact that we've seen David make this full turn into possibly the villain of the entire series at the end of the day, it's kind of refreshing actually. I think it's a really, really neat turn that you don't see a lot in shows like this or in shows just in general. It's just something that at the beginning of season one, you wouldn't have expected. Now, maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you don't think he's the villain. Maybe you think he has been dealt a raw hand, and maybe you want him to try and, you know, at the end of the day, mold things the way he wants them to and have a happy ending for him. I, I Maybe you would rather see anything but that. Maybe you are Team Sid in a way, and you're like, how dare he take advantage of her like that? And he really, really does. Some of the things that David has done in this show up to this point are really unforgivable if you if you want to think about it. And and some of them, while he wasn't under the control of the Shadow King, of, of Farouk. So it's really hard to know where your loyalties are going to lie here on Legion. But I think that there's a lot to love about Switch. I think she's a very interesting and neat character, especially to bring in in this final season. And I actually never really felt lost in this season three premiere. I made the joke earlier, but I felt like I felt like I was on a good footing. Like I knew where I was at, knew what was going on. Things were more a little bit more linear than they usually are when it comes to Legion. Legion, there is a little bit of repetition involved, of course, and and you sort of understand that for what's going on and the whole time travel thing. You got to play with that a little bit. But I will say that I'm I'm very interested in what's going to happen for the remainder of this final season of Legion on FX. Make sure you're watching it Mondays at 10 o'clock Eastern. It's going to be a really creepy and crazy ride just like it always is on Legion. And I cannot wait to see where the rest of this is going. This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by CNN's original series, The Movies. And, you know, I love reliving my favorite movies. And speaking of that, CNN's doing something really cool this summer. You might have heard CNN. Sunday, July the 7th, their new CNN original series, The Movies, 
premieres. Now, what does CNN have to do with the movies, you ask? Who cares? It's just cool that they're doing it. Every week, the show will focus on a specific decade of films starting at the dawn of the U.S. cinema and going all the way through the present day. So this week, they're starting with the 80s. So Breakfast Club, Back to the Future, and hell yeah, Terminator, I'll be back. So they're all in there starting Sunday, July the 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern. What's cool is that every week after that, For the next five weeks, the show, which is produced by Tom Hanks and Gary Getzman in association with HBO, will focus on a different decade and go inside some of your favorite movies featuring interviews ranging from Steven Spielberg all the way to Rob Zombie. They're really covering all the bases there. So check out the new CNN original series, The Movies, starting Sunday, July the 7th at 9 p.m. It seems right up my alley and ours here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Legion at Season 3 premiere. Up next, we've got some, speaking of the 80s, Ghostbusters news to tend to, and we'll talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Eric Burnham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We might be finding out if ghosts are afraid of ants because it's time for nerd news. And the reason I say that is that Paul Rudd is going to be joining the Ghostbusters 2020 movie. That's right, the Ghostbusters revival. This all according to Variety. So yeah, that's the name of the movie now, by the way. Ghostbusters 2020, which, I mean, coming out in 2020 sort of makes sense. You got to kind of hit that year now, though, don't you? Because you've literally named your year after your movie after it. But Paul Rudd is going to be playing, uh, reportedly now, a teacher in this movie. So not really much... Beyond that, and again, we really don't know a whole lot about this movie other than it's happening. I mean, we also know that Carrie Coon and Finn Wolfhard are going to be a part of this movie. She's going to play his mom, and it looks like he might be one of the young Ghostbusters, maybe. Again, this is all speculation. And of course, you got McKenna Grace, who fits in here somewhere. Again, rumored to be one of the younger Ghostbusters that's going to be a part of this movie. So... We don't even really know who from the original cast is going to be in this, how it's connected, anything like that. All we know is we had that one little teaser. We saw Ecto-1 covered up, and it was cool, right? It just seemed like it was a good vibe. And I cannot think of a more perfect addition to a Ghostbusters movie, though, than Paul Rudd. He's just got that comedic timing that was one of the things that made the first Ghostbusters movie, great, right? Not just the chemistry between the cast, but that quick timing that, like, a Bill Murray would have for certain lines, right? And he's just, he also happens to be very likable at the same time, like Dan Aykroyd was. So it's like you're taking Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and putting him into one person, and you've got Paul Wright. He's just, he's the perfect vibe for a movie like Ghostbusters. Now, there's no, he's not necessarily going to be thrown on a proton pack himself or anything like that, but... Again, I think that being the teacher, if the younger kids are going to maybe be the Ghostbusters or at least be part of it, maybe a mentorish type role from Paul Rudd would be really, really interesting and providing some comic relief as well. So, I, again, I can't think of anything more perfect. I love the response that he had. The Sony Pictures UK on Twitter posted that video where he said when he found out he almost slimed himself. Love that. So the enthusiasm's there. I, I've, I'm, I've already been excited for this movie, and I know that there's been a lot of debate about it. You can go listen to what I said about it on the past show. I'm not going to go ahead and rehash that, but I'm excited for Ghostbusters 2020, and hopefully it's good. I want it to be good so bad, and hopefully it will be. Here's something that I definitely think is going to be good, and Joe Hill, that's right, we just had Nosferatu come to TV, and now we know that Joe Hill is getting back to his roots. That's right. Entertainment Weekly reported this week that Joe Hill will have a new horror comics line at DC. Now, DC has said this is not going to be an imprint. It's going to be more of a pop-up line, as they call it, and it's going to be Hill House Comics. Now, this coming right on the heels of them getting rid of Vertigo, getting rid of DC Inc., DC Zoom, and saying, okay, here's our three publishing arms. We're going to have Black Label, we're going to have DC, and we're going to have DC Kids. That's it. Well, not necessarily it. I don't know which one of those three categories that Hill House Comics is going to fall under, or none of them. It seems like none of them. It's just going to operate as its own entity. So, yeah, it sounds like an imprint, but we won't get caught up in the semantics of what it actually is. But remember how great Lock and Key was. You almost forget that Joe Hill was a comics writer because he's had so many recent successful novels, right? So you almost forget Lock and Key was huge, right? Eisner winner, if, if I'm not mistaken 
right? So now he's bringing that style and new horror comics to DC. And we've got one that he's going to write actually called Basket Full of Heads, which sounds really neat. It's him and Leo Max that are doing the art. And it's a house sitting type of situation. Two people are, are house sitting in New England. It's a mansion. And it's full of all these Viking artifacts. There's a home invasion. Then you find out some of these artifacts might have supernatural powers or something like that. It just sounds really cool. And then there's another one that Hill's going to write with an unnamed artist called Plunge. And he says that's going to be riffing off of John Carpenter's The Thing. So that sounds real. I mean, there are worse subject matters and, and worse muses to go with, right, than John Carpenter's The Thing. A couple more that, that have been announced are The Dollhouse Family, which is going to be Mike Carey on the writing and Peter Gross doing the illustrations. And The Low, Low Woods with Carmen Maria Machado and Danny there doing the art. And Daphne Byron, which is the, actually the name of the book, by the way, Laura Marks. And Kelly Jones is actually going to be doing the art on that one. Now, Laura Marks, that's interesting because I believe Laura Marks worked on the Lock and Key TV adaptation with Joe Hill recently. So there's a connection there. Now, I mean, if you're going for horror, Joe Hill's the guy, right? He's your modern day guy that you want working on anything horror. And for DC, just making so many fans angry, getting rid of Vertigo... There's been so many creators that said, and I said this on Twitter too, that that Vertigo will live on in the creators that created these amazing books and these amazing stories. Just because the Vertigo name isn't there doesn't mean these stories are going to go away. And now we see that spirit in these Hill House comics, right? In that these, it screams Vertigo, doesn't it? But this will live in its own way, I think. And, and it, of course, it being a pop-up line as well, it's obviously going to be living on its own. So I think that this is one of those things where it's almost like the comfy pillow for fans to land on saying, okay, yeah, Vertigo is gone, but we do have this, and this seems pretty cool. So again, hopefully we'll find out more at Comic-Con coming up this year about the Hill House comics. I'm excited for it because I, you know, you've seen, if you've seen the covers that are in the press release, some of it looks not just downright scary, but it looks like there could be some interesting stories in there as well. Speaking of some interesting stories, let's do a little bit of trailer talk. And I want to start, actually, with the Charlie's Angels reboot trailer that was just released a couple of days ago for the movie that's going to be coming out from Sony Pictures on November the 15th of this year. And it's been, I'm not going to, I mean, there's no need in telling you what it's about. You've seen Charlie's Angels. You've seen, I mean, this is this has been rebooted a couple of times now. And there's no real surprises about what this movie is going to be about, right? So... Basically, first of all, Kristen Stewart, you want to talk about you want to talk about Robert Pattinson getting the bad rap for Twilight when he was cast as Batman. Kristen Stewart's had the Twilight thing follow her career for a while too, and I know she's done some other things. But man, did she she had so much personality. She was so likable in this trailer. It's Sabrina, wasn't she? Or Sabina, excuse me. I, I did not expect that. And she and she looks awake and vibrant. This is a this is a brand new Kristen Stewart. As far as I'm concerned, it was it actually was one of the best things about the trailer was her character. But I'll tell you who I've got my eye on in this. Ella Belinska, who plays Jane. Now, that's the name that you don't necessarily know that's part of these angels, right? I mean, you know Naomi Watts. You see Bosley, Elizabeth Banks. You know her. Not a whole lot is known about Ella. It's not like she's never been in anything before, but it's not she hasn't been in anything you know, hugely recognizable like her other fellow stars have. So it's easy to say, well, I don't know who she is, but she maybe didn't steal the show because of how great Kristen Stewart was in this trailer, but she really made her presence felt in this trailer. And I think that this is one of those things where when when this movie's over, you're going to go, man, I, I had no idea who, who Ella... Balinska was before this, but I know now, and this could be one of those things where she suddenly gets cast in a lot of stuff because she looks like she's going to be great. But we have like, what, three, four Bosleys in this movie too? You got, you've got Patrick Stewart, you've got Jamon Hanso, you've got so many things going on in this movie that this already doesn't feel like your traditional Charlie's Angels movie. It feels like this is something different, something fresh. And it just, but it captured that vibe of Charlie's Angels that, I mean, I even think that the, the, the first reboot movie I thought was pretty good too. And the second one, maybe not so much, but the first reboot movie that they did 
with Drew, Bar- Drew Barrymore and company, I thought that was pretty good. And this one kind of feels like that, but better in this first trailer, if I'm going to be honest. there's I was not... I, I'm not going to say I wasn't excited for this before, but it was like, yeah, okay, so they're doing another Charlie's Angels movie. That's just how I came into it. But then I see this trailer, and this is what a first trailer is supposed to do. It's supposed to go make me go, man, I want to see this movie. And that's what this Charlie's Angels trailer did. It actually got me excited for something that I wasn't necessarily excited about before I watched this trailer, and now I have to see this in November on the 15th, in case you'd forgotten the release date. Speaking of something that I have to see, Amazon Prime Video, which kind of snuck this in about a month ago or so, I think it was, Carnival Row, which is the show with Orlando Bloom. It's also going to have Cara Delevingne in there and some others. It's going to be coming out on August the 30th. We, we got a little bit of another sneak of that. It's another like quick little 45 seconds. And basically, what it is, is it's a Victorian fantasy world with mythological immigrant creatures. And they're kind of forbidden to live with freedom or love or do basically anything with any sort of freedom. But then you have a human detective and a fairy that rekindle romance. And that's not necessarily something you're supposed to do. And then peace just sort of falls apart in their community. And, and you know, st- stuff started, starts to go a little bit haywire. So... We don't know a whole lot about this, and I already like that going in anyway, but just the vibe of the whole thing. First of all, just the Victorian vibe and the fantasy vibe combined has me interested, but something about this just has that cool factor that you can't necessarily put your finger on. You're like, man, I don't know a whole whole lot about this. But it just seems so mysterious and cool that I have to see it. And that's exactly what I feel about Carnival Rome. Not, not to mention, it just, just looks damn good, doesn't it? This is one of those shows for Amazon that could be the thing that gets everybody talking about Amazon Prime Video shows again. Not that that hasn't been happening, but have you seen their lineup for Comic-Con this year? You've got The Boys, you've got Carnival Row, and you've got The Expanse, you've got Undone, which sort of came out of nowhere as an animated series. I think Amazon is right on the verge of really busting out with people going, man, where did Amazon come from with all these great shows? Because they're really picking and choosing what they put out. And I really like that they've been doing that, focusing on quality over quantity. I think that's really been working out for them. So in August, yeah, I'm going to be watching Carnival Row. Probably going to just binge the whole thing while I'm at it. Here's something that fans have been excited about for a while, though, and that's the Teen Titans Go versus Teen Titans trailer, which... Finally came out. IGN had the exclusive release. And yeah, it is the 2003 Titans meet the Teen Titans Go group. But the Versus thing, just like any other Versus comic or movie, it's Versus for like five seconds. And then they end up having to team up because we see the Trigons behind this whole mess. And it's Trigon times two, by the way. So now you've got to stop not just one, but two Trigons. And that's when the hilarity starts to ensue with the interactions between the two different sets of characters. And then you've got, I mean, Santa Claus shows up at one point. Raven flips out, and Raven and Raven have their little thing between each other where they're, where they're kind of going back and forth, which is hilarious. Tara Strong versus Tara Strong. Love that. And maybe we see some other Titans mixed up in there as well. Did you see that one quick part of that trailer? I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to wait for this. I'm going to wait to see how this shakes out. But it just looks like this just looks like it's going to be a ton of fun. And and it's something that, I mean, fans have wanted these Teen Titans from 2003 back for so long. But to be able to celebrate the past 17 years like this and having them come together later this year, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I don't don't even know if I care that anything really comes out of this other than we get one great movie and that's it. I'd be fine with that too. But I think that this is going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait for it. Something that kind of I wasn't expecting to hear about this week, but I was so glad that I did. On Twitter, we found out that Psych the Movie 2, wait for it, is happening. Yep, that's right. Gus and Sean are back. They are going to be back in Santa Barbara. Doesn't look like they're going to be too welcome there. But here's the big news, though. Lassie is back. Carlton Lasseter, Timothy Omenson, going to be back for this movie in, in a much bigger role. He was in the last one. I know that, but it wasn't for long enough. So Lassie is finally going to be back. As a matter of fact, Joel McHale who may or may not be playing the villain in this movie. He's going to be someone from Lasseter's past, apparently. Some of this according to comicbook.com, who's tried to find a little bit of a scoop on this movie. So uh, Joel McHale, I think, a great addition. Think about it. You had Zachary Levi as your last villain. Now you've got Joel McHale. That's a a couple of pretty good names to have 
for Psych the Movie. But I mean, and again, the story almost doesn't even matter as much as you're bringing me back into the Psych world again and these characters that so many fans, myself included, fell in love with. And I could watch a thousand Psych movies and and probably never be bored. So this is tailor-made for somebody like me, and it is going to be coming out once again in the holiday this year. I don't know if we'll have a Christmas theme once again necessarily, and there really wasn't that much of a theme in the last one. But Psyched for this, pun intended, absolutely can't wait to watch Psych the Movie Part 2. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to be talking to Mark Gagliardi about Blood and Treasure and a whole bunch of other stuff that he's doing as well. It's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Haley Mancini. And I'm Jake Goldman. And we are writers for the Powerpuff Girls. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah. You might actually know this next guy from a few different things, but specifically Blood and Treasure, where he plays Father Chuck every Tuesday at 10 o'clock on CBS. Mark Gagliardi. How you doing, man? (laughs) I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. So, I mean, Blood and Treasure isn't quite drunk history, but you are really kind of somewhat surrounded by history. So what made you want to be a part of the show? I mean, it's, it's what's not to love. It's a giant blockbuster action center network series. Like, it's, uh, it, feels like it feels like playing in the big leagues, which is a lot of fun. And aside from just the, the, that sense of, you know, getting to be a part of something that's really big and epic and fun that travels all over the world... Uh, I just, it, it lined up exactly with the things that I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of history. I had been to Rome and loved walking around the ruins, and, um, and I loved, you know, the Da Vinci Code and National Treasure and all of these treasure-hunting movies. When I was a kid, I would, you know, draw maps in the neighborhood, and, uh, and I was certain there was buried treasure everywhere. So this really is a show that uh, 10-year-old me is super excited about. That's awesome. And I love that Father Chuck, at first, when he meets Lexi, thought, says that she was the devil. But then they kind of actually start to bond a little bit, and that relationship starts to grow. So how fun have the, were those scenes for the two of you at the beginning? Those, that was one of my favorite scenes to, uh, to shoot, because it was one of my first scenes that I got to shoot on the show. It was actually one of the scenes I auditioned with, so I knew it backwards and forwards, uh, which makes it a lot easier on the day to just relax and shoot the scene. And also Sophia's just such a great actor that sitting opposite her, we both knew that we trusted each other uh, as performers. Alric Riley, the director of that episode, uh, he trusted us and we trusted him. It, it, was, it, it was a lovely scene. And it also helped that, you know, we're sitting on a couch with um, the lights dimmed and fake booze and glasses. So it was a sort of a relaxing atmosphere for that scene. Um, but story-wise, I think it's really fun, like, it's fun when a character gets to make a discovery and change their mind about something. You know, if every character was, if every character never changed their mind and was the same from beginning to end, it, you know, it'd be pretty boring. So it's nice to have Father Chuck get to, uh, get to really get to know um, Lexi. One of the things I really love about the show actually is that pretty much every movie reference on the show kind of goes over everybody's head all the time. Did you guys know that was going to be a running gag? Because I noticed that in almost every episode now. <laughs> well, they always go over uh, Lexi's head because they frequently go over Sophia's head. Um, because Sophia, uh, as our creator Stephen Skaya put it, uh, has better stuff to do with her time than memorize movies. <laughs> How dare she! I know, that's what I said. All the rest of us were like, oh man, we, we get these movie quotes and I love it. I think it's one of the most fun aspects of the show is that the show knows that it is uh, paying homage to all these classics and different characters pay homage to different things, uh, which I think is great. Um, you know, uh, Matt Barr as Danny is always referencing Indiana Jones and uh, Shaw references Predator, and Father Chuck references The Princess Bride. Another thing that uh, Matt and Steve, the creators, uh, said that I thought was really, really fun is the idea that uh, every character has a, every character that they write has a favorite movie, which I think is pretty great. Yeah, that makes so, a lot yeah, of... We'll keep doing it for the rest of the season. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's going to be a lot of fun. Now, you said you're you're a history buff, of course. Now, the mystery of Cleopatra's tomb is one of the biggest mysteries in history, actually, and and certainly one of the most famous hunts ever. But uh, is there anything similar in history that you think's maybe bigger, or is there something else that you hope the show tackles at some point? To, uh, well, it's nothing that the show can tackle because we would real it would move from homage to ripoff if we did the Ark of the Covenant. But I just watched a documentary yesterday about this guy, because like I said, I'm, this is the nerd that I am. Uh, this guy who claims to have found a code in the Bible to the exact location of uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So that was pretty fascinating. Oh, interesting. Uh, there's uh, the gold room, Catherine the Great's gold room, which has never been found. I mean, look, if we're going to pick a treasure to go after... Go bigger, go home. Let's find Atlantis. Drop off. Yeah, there it is. Here and let's go digging. There it is. I love that. Absolutely love that. Now, there's actually, so taking a break from that for a second, there's something else that yeah. you're part of that I think is really cool. It's the Thrilling Adventure Hour. So, for anyone who doesn't oh, cool. know, talk about that a little bit and even about Sparks Nevada as well. Yeah, so Thrilling Adventure Hour was, it really was and is, We've got another recording coming up. Something that has absolutely changed my life. It was, um, uh, I started off at Second City with Ben Acker uh, as, as an actor in one of his uh, sketch shows. He was a comedy writer there. And uh, I did one of the sketch shows, and I knew Hal Lublin, and he and I had come up through that uh, same school. And um, one day, Ben uh, and his writing partner, Ben Blacker, they sat down and they said, uh, we want to do a table read of this movie that we've written called Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, which is cool. It was a space Western. And this was 2004. So I, I don't know if that predated Firefly. Oh, wow. I mean, that was a long time ago. Uh, yeah, it was 2004. We sat down to read this, uh, this screenplay. And it was great. And it was a blast. And we have a couple of friends from that world who were uh, at the top of their game, both work-wise and notoriety-wise. So that gave Acker and Blacker the idea to, uh, well, well, that movie didn't exactly fly, to turn that movie into a a live, onstage, fake old-time radio show. Because that was the conceit that they could use that would allow them to uh, bring their friends and some celebrity guests in. And it wouldn't be too much of a, it wouldn't be too much of a commitment if you've got the script in your hand and you're basically doing a table read, you can do, you're just standing on your feet doing it. And the show just blossomed from there. We, uh, you know, we added a small uh, little musician's pit on stage and then a full orchestra we had for a long time. Um, we moved from a little theater called Embar that was a wonderful home to Largo, which is a much larger theater. Um, we got Weird Al on the show and, John Hamm and Ira Glass, like, so, and Yvette Nicole Brown, just some of these, like, crazy, hilarious, amazing people. And, um, and we did it every month for a decade. And that, uh, that experience, meeting all the people doing that, um, meeting the fans, building up this big fan base like we did, uh, it's led to so much for me. It's led to jobs. It's led to, um, it's, it's led to, Comic-Cons, I've been performing at Comic-Cons now for about a decade, um, just because we originally started taking shows there. And then uh, Hal and I, after Thrilling Adventure Hour ended, Hal and I started our own podcast to try and, you know, keep together some of the audience and some of the family from Thrilling Adventure Hour. So we still do that. It's, it's Yeah, I encourage everyone that hasn't uh, given it a listen to listen to. We're doing some cool treasury episodes now, but listen to our original live episodes. Uh, it's kind of like, imagine if uh, if uh, Prairie Home Companion, or what's the new name for it? Uh, live from Here. There you go. Uh, if Live from Here was done with a bunch of Hollywood snarky people. <laughs> I love it. And to, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a Sparks Nevada comic as well? Yeah, there's a comic book. Like, what, they, these guys crafted such a fun world with between, the way that the show was set up was three segments. There was always a, two tent poles and then a floater in the middle. And the two tent poles were Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, which is this space western about Sparks Nevada, who is the marshal in the western sector of space, and his faithful Martian companion, Croach the Tracker, uh, and all of the adventures and the characters populating that world. The second one was called Beyond Belief, which was uh, 
basically Nick and Nora, but for the paranormal, they're uh, high society socialite types who uh, who help out uh, ghosts and monsters with their problems. Uh, so those two temple shows have now become comic books, and uh, Spark- the Sparks Nevada one is particularly great for kids because it's you know it's a space western and it's it's uh, it's he's got laser you know laser pistols and robot fists and all the robots in town are the outlaws. Like it's just a really fun, kid friendly and also you know everyone friendly world. So yeah, they've been creating comic books of it. There's been uh, toys. Like it's just a very strange, fun world. You know. It sounds like such a blast. We're talking about we're talking to Mark Gagliardi, who of course plays Father Chuck and a whole bunch of other stuff actually. But on Blood and Treasure, you can see that every Tuesday at ten o'clock. On CBS now, Mark. Speaking of comic books, some fans might remember that you were the voice of Batman on DC Super Friends back in 2015. Now, clearly, yeah. Mark, your number or something must have been lost when they were casting the new movie. I know these things happen in Hollywood from time Look, to time, but Robert I mean, since Pattinson is gonna be great. That's right. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I totally agree with you on that. But since Batman I... is 80 this year. What's it like knowing that you're kind of a part of that history as well? It's really, really fun. Like, it was, it was weird the first time I saw an online thing that was like, here's your, and, and you've got to be like, you've got to be a completist to get my Batman. Like, you've got to really be <laughs> every single Batman. Because we did, you know, we didn't do a huge run, but we did uh, 15 episodes of, uh, of a reboot of Super Friends along with this company, Imaginex, that had made toys for it. Um, but it was a blast, and it was the first time I saw myself on this list of here are all the people who have played Batman. I was very, very excited to see that. Um, but again, I, I I just did it for one gig. There is uh, there is no comparing to Kevin Conroy, who is uh, the I think the absolute best Batman of all time, uh, live action or voiceover. Um, yeah, he's the one that plays him now. He play, he's played him since Batman the Animated Series, and he's great. We were talking about this with Hal, because we talked about this on our show once. Uh, his version of Batman is great because everyone else seems to do... Um, Bat, uh, Batman is Bruce Wayne putting on a voice. Uh, and I think Kevin Conroy realized that uh, Bruce Wayne is Batman putting on a fake yes. voice. Yes, Bruce Wayne, Which I thought was a really cool distinction. And it's, you know... It's Batman. I I freaked out when I got the job. My son, my son has those toys, by the way. Oh, good. That's yes. Awesome. So I, it's I still, like, it still I, lives I, on, man. It's still it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Oh, good. I got all those toys for my uh, for my nephews shamelessly. Like my sister is screwed. Like she's never going to be the cool one as far as like the <laughs> so, Guess what? I was Batman, and here's all the toys from. Remember that time I played Batman? So it's you know. Awesome, awesome. You know, it's funny, when, I, when I'm watching Father Chuck on Blood and Treasure, it feels like that voice actor just wants to jump out of you so much. How much fun is it to do that stuff? And is there anything like on your list as a voice actor, you're like, man, I hope I get to be a part of this someday? Oh, there's, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a voice on The Simpsons, right? Um, but that's, you know, that's bucket list. That's voiceover bucket. I think that's everybody's voiceover bucket list. Um, but yeah, it's fun, like, they throw... They throw some. I think that once they realized early on that if they gave me a movie quote, I was going to do the voice on the show. Then they started just giving me more things like that. Uh, so I'm happy to bring as many voices as possible uh, to the thing. Now, I would also for this for this other bucket list thing, I would need to know how to uh, puppeteer. Um, but man, it would be cool to be the voice of a Muppet. Oh but yeah, that would be awesome. Let's talk about voices. That's. That's the whole character. That's, that's, you know, your whole body incorporates that. But I've always been a big Muppet fan. Back yeah. to Blood and Treasure for a second, because one of the best scenes, I yeah. think, in the show so far was when Father Chuck is kind of helping Danny get through one of those big moments where one of the team members dies in, in the field, and they decided to play a little baseball. So I can't help but wonder what Father Chuck's ERA is at this point, but how important do you think he's been to Danny and everything that's going on? Um... First of all, thank you, and I love that scene. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you this, Chuck has a much better ERA than I have. <laughs> I played baseball, and I busted my butt 
uh, I got actually I was I was lucky enough a friend of mine uh, linked me up with um, with the Los Angeles Dodgers relief pitcher Ross Stripling who taught me a few uh, pointers on how to throw a baseball and uh, had a friend with me in Rome who we took a whole day and just drilled throwing a baseball all day so um, you know so Chuck is better at baseball than I am but I'm getting there uh, but as far as the relationship goes. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a he's his best friend, and that's there's something really special about that because a best friend is somebody that you can tell things to that you wouldn't tell other people. You can confide in them, you listen to them, and also the fact that Chuck is a priest and has devoted his life to giving people uh, sound, wise advice uh, in all manner of things. It, it does turn out to be that um, Father Chuck becomes an ear for Danny a lot of times, and uh, a Jiminy Cricket, sort of, when he needs it. Now, Mark, before I let you go, we've seen Father Chuck help out behind the scenes plenty and, of course, give Danny a place to stay. But the one time he was asked to go out on a mission, he politely declined. So I have to ask you, will we actually see Father Chuck get his hands dirty at some point before this, before this season's over? I will, I'll say this. Uh, you have seen Father Chuck so far uh, in his element. By the end of the season, you will see Father Chuck very much out of his element. And that in the business, boys and girls, is what we call a tease for you to watch Blood and Treasure <laughs> every Tuesday at 10 o'clock Eastern on CBS. So you can see this guy right here. It's Mark Gagliardi. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. One of the things that I love about Blood and Treasure, other than the movie references and other than just Father Chuck being in general hilarious, is that it's just fun it's a fun adventure treasure hunt type series that takes you to different places maybe teaches maybe a little bit not necessarily exact history but has fun with history in general and and it's just got a great cast and it's just so much fun to watch and that might be why by the way breaking news the show has been renewed by cbs for a second season so congrats to everybody at blood and treasure and mark gagliardi who joined us this week to talk about the show make sure you keep watching every tuesday night at 10 o'clock on cbs that's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast again thanks to mark agliardi for joining me this week and of course cnn's the movies make sure you're watching that as well sunday july the 7th at 9 p.m eastern you don't want to miss that either there's plenty of stuff going on for us to san diego comic-con coming up follow all the pre-con coverage at down and nerdy podcast.com there's so much more than that up there too by the way also follow along on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy and at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram too. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.